You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start today's show, a word for one of our sponsors, Zing Bales. The creators of the electronic flashing wicket system you'd have seen all over TV, Zing, are pleased to announce the Club Zings, giving you the opportunity to take the excitement from the big tournaments to your club. With 1,800 lumens of light, the Club Zings look spectacular, engage spectators, help retain juniors and unlock additional sponsor investment through the sale of Stump Sticker Sponsor Rights. Find out more at zings.biz slash club. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, and the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner. First up, let's go to Mark Butcher to hear his thoughts on Ben Stokes' retirement from ODI cricket and England's most recent two ODI defeats. Mark, since we last spoke, England have lost two more ODIs, starting with the Ben Stokes farewell game at Durham. That felt very 2014 from England, Alistair Cook's ODI team from England. They were miles behind the run rate of what three years ago would have almost been a routine run chase for them. Do you sense a change in philosophy or is that just the conditions, the the massive square boundaries, good bowling from South Africa, etc.? I don't sense a change in philosophy, no. Um, I asked Josh Butler about that at the um, at the presentation post-match and he just said, look, you know, Roy and Bairstow, two of, the, two of the best, two of the most aggressive players in the world. It wasn't for lack of trying that they ended up getting behind the rate. Um, the one thing that you, the one thing that you do sense a little bit at the moment is that there's kind of a, there's a lack of sort of spark and a lack of inspiration for for the team now. Um, you know, there are, there are mitigating factors to yesterday. I mean, they they just finished up the series against India a couple of days back. Um, 50 overs in the heat out there at Durham. On top of the, the matches that they played back to back the week before, pretty brutal. Um, albeit the, the the bowling. The bowling attack was quite different from from Old Trafford. 
but you know, even the fielders out there for for fifty overs, and then having to come out and bat and, and go and go at the sort of rate that was going to keep them up with the game was, you know, would have would have been a challenge. Um, again, if that game had been had been the first game of a series um, with teams having had a, a good week off to to get ready for it, then you could kind of, you know, you'd say, well, that's no excuse. But I think there's a there's pretty big mitigation in the fact that they've played now four over the space of just over a week. Um, but I mean, yeah, like you can't get away from the fact that at the moment it just it, it does feel it does feel very very sort of lacking in any sort of um, in any sort of spark now. Um, again, I've had conversations around sort of like the idea about sort of the human nature side of things when you have split coaches at the moment. You've got the, the guy, you've got the superstar coach looking after one team. And once you get off to a sort of a bad start, it, it would, it's only human nature to kind of look over at one, at one sort of set of one set of players and all the wonderful things that are happening over there and go, well, why have we got that as well? <laughs> Which is not to, blame, not to blame anybody for that, especially not Matthew Mott. But it, it's kind of, if they don't start digging themselves out of it soon, they've lost, what, five out of seven in the, in the new era so far? Unheard of numbers for, for, for England's recent white ball um, cricket. That reversal and that sort of, um, that, that bad atmosphere, I suppose, will become something that becomes really difficult to shift. Mm. Um, you spent a few days now with Owen Morgan in the, in the commentary box. And part of what made England pull off that fearless brand of cricket was that after every bad day England had, and England did have bad days occasionally under Morgan's captaincy, he would come out and defend the way they play blindly. He would never publicly even suggest a hint of criticism at the, at the way in which England went about things. Do you get the sense that Mott and Butler are, are actually going to be able to do that? Because that's such a hard thing to do that, you know, you, you, England have had three top order collapses, they haven't batted 50 overs, to actually say, keep on doing this, especially with both of them new in the job. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Owen... Is, is an extraordinary guy. Um, I've spent, you know spent a few days sort of driving around with him, play golf with him on. Um, I don't even know what day it is now. What day is it today? It's Wednesday morning. Day, so it would have been on, it would have been on Monday. Um, you know, so I've sort of got the chance to sort of talk to him and, and sort of exchange some thoughts and ideas. And he's you know a, a, just an extraordinary guy, really. Um, and so yeah, so replacing that is 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 always going to be extremely difficult. Um, you know, but on the on the one hand, you know, they're, they're sort of not not managing to bow out fifty overs. But on the other hand, it feels as though they're not kind of being quite as dynamic and, and aggressive as they were under Owen Morgan. Now, both of those things are kind of unlikely to be true, are they? Um, so, uh, you know, they, sometimes you run into a period of time where the guys aren't playing very well. Um, but that, I don't know. There just seems to be teams in the past have been sort of cowed by by England, in the, particularly with the bat. You know, they've sort of come out and just imposed themselves to such an extent that it didn't matter that you, you might lose a wicket or two, or um, you know, get get off to a, a get off to a sort of a slightly less than optimum start. It didn't matter. You know, the, the wave would just keep coming and keep coming until eventually the opposition submitted. Um, and and England have, have attempted that, I think. And haven't pulled it off, not having pulled it off once. Um, and that's, um, it's not a worry because it's, it's very, very early days for all this stuff yet. But as I said, it, what, what, when winning and when sort of imposing yourself becomes a habit, um, that, that, that uh, momentum becomes very difficult to stop. But I can imagine it also is very, very difficult to start if you, you know, if you, if you sort of falter uh, to the extent that they, they've been faltering. Now, 
I haven't mentioned South Africa yet. They were sensational yesterday. Um, you know, I thought they, they pitched the, the pace of their batting um, superbly in the conditions. I, I actually did feel that, that, that they, they, they were perhaps not quite as aggressive as they might have been in the last 15 overs. But up until that point, I think they played it brilliantly. And yet they still managed to make 333. Um, Van der Dussen's innings was, was fabulous in the conditions. Um, you know, they only hit, what, 10 boundaries, I think, in that, in that innings. And still had a strike rate well in excess of 100. Um, and then, you know, and then with the ball, they, they did everything right there too. You know, the bit of, I suppose, a little bit of fortune in that Markram was able to, came in and perhaps might not have done had Pepe Cuello not run into, not been knocked Sparko by his captain. Um, but by then the rate had already climbed up to, to, uh, to something that was, that was getting very unmanageable um, in the conditions. So I thought South Africa played a brilliant game, really did. Um, and it's, I think it's up to England. It was, up to England on Friday to come out and kind of and to stop all of the noise um, with a with a performance with a blockbuster performance. That's that's basically what's required mm. right now. Um, and then you know you set the thing up for for a decider in the final game on Sunday, and and, and anything can happen then. Um, but at the minute, it just it, it just does feel a little bit a little bit devoid of inspiration right now. Well, I guess when, when England played with that, you had that never-ending bombardment with the bat, they did have four guys in the top six who basically averaged between 40 and 50, who had strike rates of about 95 to 110. If you go through the 11 that played the World Cup final, three have retired now, three haven't played an ODI in over a year because of injuries. Butler averages about, genuinely, I, I, I was shocked by this stat myself, Butler averages about 10 in ODI cricket since the World Cup in ODIs against full member nations. Roy, not miles better. Do we just need to recalibrate expectations a little bit? 2019 was just quite a long time ago now. Well, it was, yeah. And England have played very few one-day internationals since then as well. I mean, the format has kind of has dropped off a cliff. And we had, we had, the, the, in, we had the conversation, um, myself and Owen, on, on air about, you know, the, what, is there any sort of sadness? Is there any fear for sort of the, the format that, that he and his team managed to resurrect in this country? You know, I think people prior to, um, you know, a long way prior to 2019, after the, the debacle in Australia in 2015, were quite happy to see 50-over cricket disappear. And I certainly remember having conversations along those lines that I, I didn't mind if I never watched another one again. You know, it was so it was so dire. And then, you know, and then Owen and the team come along and kind of and make the make the the, the format um, seem brand new and shiny and, and and exciting to watch once again. And now, of course, you've got a situation where um, you know, the players of, of the, the, the latest generation, the better ones anyway, are hardly going to play any 50-over cricket at all. Um, the ones that are currently involved in, in the 50-over game for, for England are hardly playing any 50-over cricket at all. Um, people are leaving it, walking away from it, left, right and centre, because they're finding that if you're a multi-format player, something has to give, and it's the obvious one to, to, to give away. Um, and so, you know, and, and Owen himself is kind of feels as though the legacy um, left being left behind has been has been dismantled um, without with barely a whimper. Um, and that's, you know, that's something else that the game has to confront going forward. Obviously, the big news this week was Ben Stokes announcing his retirement from ODI cricket. Did you see that coming at all? What was your initial reaction when the news filtered through the other day? Yeah, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised at all. Um you know, it, it, it's a it, just him as a player. 
the the amount of energy expended or required or whatever to, to perform at the level that he performs. Then you add in the fact that he's he's now England Test captain. So that the uh, the schedule in terms of Test cricket is is manic this year, and I don't see it slowing down at all. Um, and you know he's, he's not going to play the hundred this year either. Um, and and he's and there are bits of him falling off at the moment. You know he'll he'll kind of put a brave face in it and say that everything's fine, but his, his left knee doesn't look particularly good. He, Clutching his hip, he doesn't follow through when he's bowling at the moment. He looks like he's in, he's in bits. So, um, no, no shock at all. But again, part of the um, part of the shame of all of this is that the, the 2019 team hasn't even had a lack of honour. You know, kind of, they won the final, they scaled the mountain, and then it, then it's kind of like then it's over. Um, yeah. And the um, uh, <laughs> And more and more players are probably going to start start looking at their careers, particularly the ones who play test matches as well, and thinking, well, do I need to? Do I want to play this format as much as as much as the other two? And the and the answer might increasingly become no. Just going back to Stokes, do you think this will shift how administrators? Obviously, this might shift how they think, but actually shift their actions at all. I mean, I was thinking about this. If you're going to come up with a promotional poster for the twenty three World twenty twenty three World Cup last week, you'd probably have Stokes's face on it. He's now gone. And if this is, as you say, the format that players, multi-format players, especially those who play test cricket, are going to probably drop off if they're going to drop anything, could you be in a problem? Because I think remember last week when we were talking about the future of ODI cricket, you were saying this is actually a format that the broadcasters really like. There's a lot of money in it um, at an administrative level. But that value decreases massively if players like Stokes and, you know, imagine if someone like Kohli from India dropped out. That would have massive ramifications of the value of, of the format. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All of all of that is is one hundred percent correct. Um, you know, again, it's 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 not easy to look at it at a global level, but it's you know we're, we're trying to focus in on what's happening here. I think the message the message that's been given out by the demotion of fifty over cricket at at club level is that it's a disposable that it's a disposable format. And, and even if you and even if you don't feel that, and even if you know at the, at the top end you, you're kind of your your view is very much 180 degrees away from that. Once that seed has been planted with people, with you know, with the people who work in the game, the people who play the game, etc., it's very difficult to reverse um, to reverse that feeling. I think. And so you know, the, there is a there's a boulder that has started at the top of the hill and it's rolling and it's gathering pace. Um, and, and what you do about reversing that, I don't know now because the, the, that die has been cast. Um, and 50 over cricket has, has become very much the, the, poor, the poor cousin to, um, to the other two, dare I say it, three formats. Um, and like I say, there, there are players at the moment, so the guys who are waiting in the wings to come in and play, right? So guys like Harry Brook, um, Phil Salt and etc. Who have had a, who have played a bit of first class, uh, a bit of list day cricket in their time. You know, not not massive amounts, but they've played some. So at least they, you know, they they have a they have a grounding in it and a love for it potentially. Um, and there are a lot of youngsters who are getting the chance. I think it was something like 100, 103 debuts were made in list day cricket last year um, because of you know the, the the sort of more senior players all being off playing a hundred instead. Um, and you're getting you're getting this kind of you know this this second rate competition that's being played, um, 
and, and players are kind of perhaps begrudgingly playing it, looking looking across the, the across the fence to the hundred and thinking I'd rather be doing that. Now how, that's that's no way to kind of to promote and keep and push the format. If if what you're really hoping is is that people playing that in that are hoping to be playing something else. Mm. So what does it look like in ten years' time? It it looks it looks bleak, doesn't it? Mm. And look, and that might be okay. You know that that at the end of it all, all we all we ever talk about is the fact that there is too much cricket and that something has to give. And if it ends up being fifty over cricket, then so be it. Um, it would be a bit, you know, it would be a loss. I think there's there's a there's an enormous amount of skill and there's an enormous amount of sort of stamina. It's a it's a really tough format to play. But if you give people the choice between um, the choice between something that is slightly less demanding and slightly less um, uh, less tiring, uh, but you can still earn the same amount of money, if not more money, for doing less work. Then what do you think people are going to do? You, know, <laughs> you don't see you don't see people in normal walks of life queuing up to do something that's much much tougher for less money when they have the choice to do something a lot easier for more. I mean, you know, human nature again, isn't it? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Phil, we talked before about how condensed the cricket calendar is for the big teams. Ben Stokes has said that playing three formats for him is unsustainable. He's only 31. Cam asks, after Stokes' ODI retirement, what will be the point the ICC realised the schedule needs to change and actually act? Well, can I jump in, actually? Go for it. Because part, part of the issue is that it's, it's not the ICC's. I mean, it should be the ICC's purview, but it's not. I mean, they are an essentially an events management company. They put on World Cups every so often. They sort of run a ranking spreadsheet and they do some social media stuff. But they're not really a governing body in any sense of the word they like you know they have these they've tried to add a bit more structure to world cricket with the world cup super league and the world test championship but then teams are kind of ignoring that to one sense africa forfeiting series and they're also like south africa will play two three match series against india and england which aren't part of the world cup super league and a forfeited series against australia which is part of the world cup super league and the ic have kind of no power to do anything about that um and then you look at who actually does have power actually so many national boards are focused basically on you know getting to the next paycheck essentially getting to the that they've been their finance has been you know they're already not in a great state and they've been uh, ransacked by covid that they basically can't focus on what is you know the ideal structure for international cricket and cricket as a whole and just have to be like how can we you know make cash right now so that we can basically continue to exist the one board of whom that's not true is the bci they have always been you know for a long term been the the board with the power and the money and they are the ones who could say you know let's get everyone together let's settle on what we think it should look like and instead and you know this is what they think cricket should look like and it's fine it seems like their plan is just to expand 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 the IPL which will consolidate their own power they will be they will be even more powerful even more lucrative as a board and it will be something that other boards have to kind of just work around and some will struggle to do so I think um so, yeah, I mean, because this is one of the, the issues. If you say we should play less cricket, firstly, that's that's only really true for 
three teams. It's England, Australia and India play each other. The rest are crying out to play meaningful cricket. cricket. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So they play each other loads. The others don't play at all. So you need those to be playing fewer cricket. But also, if, if, if if there was less cricket being played, that is just going to create windows for times when people when players aren't playing cricket for more leagues to spring up it seems like and for those players then end up playing other types of cricket at different times it's all there's no direction at all and no one who has any will to put any direction onto it and the ICC don't really have the power to say this is how cricket should look because that's that's not what they are essentially that's a brilliant answer to begin with and I'm glad that you stepped in uh, because I, I wouldn't have been able to get close to that. But that is a brilliant answer. Uh, and if, if Ben Stokes' uh, quitting of ODIs has led to this conversation, then it has to be branched out. Um, and for me, it kind of goes hand in glove, really, with, with, with Stokes' Stokes's call. But uh, it's quite telling that this week, or in fact, the end of last week, the news came out that CSA as in Cricket South Africa, have pulled out of a three-match ODI series due to be slated against Australia later in the year. And the reason why they've done that is because uh, they have opened up their own T20 tournament to essentially the highest bidders, and that has now been absorbed into the IPL's largesse. So what that means is that the IPL is going on tour. The IPL is going on tour to South Africa, um, this winter and uh, for example Chennai Super Kings has already been announced that they have bought up one of the franchises they will be playing in Joburg for example at the Wanderers uh, the other five slots have all been taken by IPL teams so the expansion of the IPL uh, which is both exciting and terrifying at once depending on where you are on, on, the, on the ledger this is this is a sign of things to come in, international board, full member board, removes their best players from three ODIs against a great team in Australia, which will be watched by many people. They, they're not just removing their players, they're removing the fixture in order to keep their players to play in their own domestic tournament. So, when we talk about the amount of cricket that's being played, we have to weigh that against, as Ben says, what the calendar will therefore free up. It won't be that Everybody will just go to the beach for a few months and have a rest because they're playing too much. It won't be that. It will be that players, uh, as funneled by their boards, will be encouraged to play more domestic T20 tournaments, in effect. Um, uh, And in the end, at the expense of international cricket. And what we've seen with CSA is in microcosm what Stokes is alluding to and what we see especially with the big three, that there is that sense of saturation point for sure. No question of that. And undoubtedly, the quality and of the product diminishes when players are, as Stokes said, just being trying to revved up and just just thrown out there for another game, another day, another showpiece. I get his position. I understand his position. But the consequences of uh, the shake-up, as the, the, the questioner alludes to, uh, will not be a reduction in cricket and therefore an overall increase in the quality. It will mean a reduction of international cricket and an increase of domestic and in my my book soulless meaningless the carousel of t20 cricket will only increase and you'll just get workhorses bobbing up and down around that carousel 
and the odd thoroughbred bobbing up and down around that carousel. Uh, and so be careful what we wish for would be my would be my line on that. So two things on that. One, are you broadly, both of you broadly happy with the amount of international cricket England currently play, given that the hole that it would leave if they didn't play as much would leave more space for franchise cricket? And two, I get what you were saying about that space being filled by franchise cricket that can be quite soulless at times, but isn't some of the cricket that is being played internationally between England, Australia and India quite soulless anyway? There's a tour that England have this winter to Australia, a three-match ODI series, I think, which is clearly solely for the purpose of fulfilling broadcast deals that were made a long time ago. Isn't that pretty soulless? Um, Is it soulless because there's too much of it? Or is it soulless? Hard to see what the point is. It's soulless. Right, well, why but, is this being played? But it's than... because it's unstructured, I think. I mean, I and, and it's I mean, part of the issue with this winter, England are playing a lot of cricket, but they're also just going to so many places. I think it's five different tours, and one of those includes a World Cup. Now, sure, some of those are only for, I think they're going to South Africa as well for three white ball games, and they're going to New Zealand for two or three tests, I think. Uh, but it's like, so So actually, if you, in a, in a winter a few years ago you might have had a not dissimilar amount of cricket maybe without the world cup in that does make it a lot more uh, and you'd have said okay that's about standard but it'd be across two tours not five and it's just like a cricket tour is no longer i don't think something players really look it's not forward a state occasion to. anymore yeah like like you know you'd have before players they'd play a lot of cricket they'd play hard they'd you know they'd work really hard but they would also have time in that for 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 rest and relaxation, it would be it would be quite a nice thing to be on rather than you, you fly in, you go to a hotel. It's what Matthew he- Matthew Hayden said to you yeah, about a year true. or so ago. He basically said to Ben that he retired because tours weren't fun anymore. Matthew Hayden and Ben Gardner in a room, my word. I mean, there is a clash of cultures <laughs> right there. He, he, he describes us as opposites, full stop. That Did was he? A, yeah. in, e- in every possible way. In every possible way. <laughs> so we're recording the day after the Durham game and there was a kind of a, scent, a, a sort of poignancy around that game. Uh, and it was Stokes' retirement, sure, um, and that was the headline. But it, it, there was also a kind of weird atmosphere, in part because of the weather, in part because you felt like the continent is burning, if you like. And and then there's this game of cricket being played, and you've got a fast bowler on his debut and his home ground, you know, having to go off because he's wrecked. You've got people wilting, literally in the melting around around the ground, um, and this is in the northeast. Uh, and I got family from the northeast. So I'm allowed to say that this is not normal. And there was a sense that the whole thing was not normal. But then it's a very easy jump for people to say, "Well, we play. We're playing too much. We shouldn't be playing. We shouldn't be playing." And therefore, by extension, the implication seems to be that game should should not be played. Took three or four days after the the last India game, and you know, no more than a couple of weeks after the last Test match, and so on. But I, I found myself watching that game and feeling sorry. For the club, and sorry for the the format as well. Actually, if you can feel sorry for an abstract thing, um, and it got me to ask him, what is it for? What what is that game for? Who is? What's the function of that cricket match yesterday? Um, and is it to satisfy the broadcast deal, which relies on content for cash, and the ECB needs cash desperately if we are to save certain recreational club cricketers, club cricket if we are to at least put a degree of cash into grassroots initiatives and schemes and so on and so on, if we really do genuinely want women's cricket to grow and thrive and flourish, then it needs to be funded. If we really do want more central contracts or more professional contracts for female players, then then again, 
it all flows from that TV deal. So is that its primary function? I, I don't know the answer to any of this. Is it also, incidentally, you know, to line the pockets of certain outgoing ECB executives? You know, that's another story. Or is it for the fans? Is it for the the, the loyalists um, up in Durham who don't get anywhere near enough cricket? Who Durham last had a test match, I think, in 2016. I think they last had a, had a T20 in 2017. And this is only their second international cricket match since the World Cup three years three years ago. This is also, incidentally, of course, a club, a venue that became a massive financial albatross around the neck of the club uh, because they were encouraged by the ECB to get themselves up to that level. And as we know, it almost dragged them into the dirt as a consequence. Um, so is it for the club? The club desperately need that fixture. They desperately need that fixture. Is it for, therefore, by extension, the 18 clubs? It's bringing in money that it can be dispersed and disseminated as a consequence of international cricket being shown around the world. Uh, or is it for the for the players? And there was a there was a sense around Stokes that it's for the players, and that we need to be careful about flogging these 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 shimmering greats um, to extinction. And I can get that argument. I can understand that argument. But for me, that fixture that that took place yesterday, which has been unfairly thrown into this conversation. Um, as indicative of too much. Well, if it is too much, then what happens to Durham? What happens to those those people who don't get anywhere near enough international cricket? What happens to the structures, the infrastructure and the financial reality of, of that great cricket club? What happens to them if that fixture is taken out of the calendar? So do we, do we just get used to, in that case, England not fielding anywhere close to their full strength side in white ball if, if we do as you sort of mentioned this morning when we were having a coffee before the show if that were to be the case then you can't slap 80 quid 100 quid tickets at people's doors and say pay them if you if you can't if you have to be realistic about the the quality of the the 11 that you end up putting on the park but that notion of squad rotation i think do we live with that now don't we i think don't we and we accept that that's that's a kind of an unfortunate consequence of the reality that cricket needs to be played and it, it, it's its finances are so rocky and precarious and its models are so dysfunctional I mean the ECB is is effectively funding 18 counties to different degrees for sure but even the more financially stable ones among the sort of smallish counties such as Essex for example um, they're still funded 60% the ECB's uh, their, their, their revenues yearly comes 60% from the ECB. The ECB is still funding 18 counties and the ECB needs cricket to be played. However much the product gets squeezed and however much we might look at it and feel that it's it's an unsatisfying result. It's unfortunately the reality that that's, 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 that's how this whole listing ecosystem relies. It's how, it's how it works. I do, it works at all. I think there's also, and I'm, I'm working through my thoughts a bit here, but there's a sense in which I, while you can sort of see an IPL-dominated landscape coming, I don't think that it necessarily follows that the IPL, in terms of revenue, will actually succeed in growing and growing and growing, or that it could actually expand a bit and then realize and then actually finds its return to diminishing. Because I think actually, as much as that's the, the cash cow in world cricket, there are ways in which the IPL is propped up by test cricket and international, and international cricket as well because that's where these players reputations and legends 
are forged. And that's a large part of where the IPL's marketability comes. It's the best to be the best. Um, it's the best playing on teams they wouldn't otherwise with teammates. That's where the fun is. But they are the best, mostly because of what they've done in international group to begin with. It's it's maybe you get some players who have their reputations forged just by being a standout IPL player. But you look at someone like, and it still happens, you look at like Sam Curran a few years ago, you know, comes out his first test summer, uh, smashes into a test series. He's a, he's a millionaire the next year and then is then tearing up the IPL, you know, hitting sixes, taking hat tricks, that sort of thing. And test cricket is in some ways, it gets a bad rap because it's hard to monetize rather than because I think it's unfollowed in a lot of ways. Like we know Yaz from running a cricket website that that is still what people want to read about by and large, isn't it? It's test cricket. But it's just that, you know, say today, uh, and we'll come on to later, Abdullah Shafiq has made this incredible hundred uh, everyone's talking about it. You know, they'll be looking at the scorecards. They'll be, they, they, they might well be, be reading about him, but very few people will have watched it. And that's kind of fine. His, you know, that is still something that has bolstered the status of test cricket. It will boost his own reputation, even if people aren't watching it. And that will then be to the boon of, you know, the next ODI World Cup, say, if Abdullah Shafiq is in that Pakistan side, we'll have seen what he can do, or we won't have seen what he can do, but we'll have will know about him more because of what he's done in this prestigious format and that will boost other things. And I think if you take that away, it will have uh, an effect. And I don't think that that is being properly recognised. And this this then goes in the hole. But I think if you this is the issue if you don't have a cohesive structure and everyone is looking after their own self-interest, that actually there would be a way, and I'm not saying I have the solution, but it requires it would require everyone to sit down. And if you could actually put together something where uh, all boards knew that they could would be able to survive and people recognised that having a thriving international game was going to be to their own benefit as well. If Because if, if the BCI basically can recognise that, say, a thriving competitive West Indies team, that is going to boost the IPL in future, even if it means sort of it do, it doesn't need, withdrawing it, their ambitions It doesn't need now. it though, really. The, the, the IPL doesn't need a strong West Indies test but, team. But it needs, strong West, it needs strong West Indies test players who have reputations, Right. Do you not, not think? Really, I, I guess the West Indies we, players who do really well in the IPL don't really have test cricket. Yeah, they, no, they, sure, they, sure, but, they, but they, they they're short circuited straight from being brilliant young prospects to getting into the IPL. They make their name in the IPL, and then you hope against hope that they might then consider looping back to wait, play the wait, odd game for the West, West Indies. West Indies might be a bad example in terms of how their test fortune gone, but but equally, if you had a a gutted West Indies cricket board and therefore cricket in the region. Uh, was decaying or had completely decayed, then you wouldn't have those players coming through in the first place to be able to play in the IPL. Yeah, right? but, but, but the, the last way that the game in the West Indies would decay is through the test game. Um, there are still going to be players who are going to want to play cricket in the West Indies, A, because it's part of the culture, and B, because there's immense amounts of riches to be made from playing short-form cricket. Um, this, this thing reminds me, actually, when I was... I've only been to India once, but I was at, there in 2012 when England won that series, that weird series that Cook made all the runs. Um, and I remember speaking to to certain people around the game who were influential voices within their regions. They weren't household names by any, by any means, but you know, secretaries of associations, presidents of, of of this region and that region. And I remember there being this ongoing theme that we don't need the international game. And I remember being struck right That's between the eyes. 10 years ago now. This was 10 years ago. We do not need, albeit it was, what, four years into the IPL, but we do not need you lot. And 
you can well understand the attitude, right? When whatever the figures are now, but it certainly used to be around 75, 80% of the world's revenues are generated from Indian cricket. That attitude would be absolutely logical, wouldn't it? And there was that sense that you, as in the rest of the world, need us far more than we need you. Um, and while, yeah, I get what you're saying, that you need sprinklings of exotic players from around the world in order for the IPL to work as essentially, you know, it's essentially the, the World Cup of cricket for domestic cricket, where the best of the best all, all congregate. I get that. Um, but the IPL's power is now so entrenched, so it's not going anywhere. It's only it's only branching out into other parts of the world. And I think it exists um, now is an entity all on its own terms. Uh, what, what's, what's happening in South Africa is intriguing. I can't stress this enough. Um, South African domestic cricket is being swallowed up by the IPL, swallowed whole. And of course, cricket South Africa is desperate for it. And if any kind of their, their own allegiance, their own identity is, is necessarily absorbed into it, then so be it, because they've got to survive. They've got to survive somehow. And if it means that they, they don't go to Australia and play three ODIs that will be sellouts and broadcast in, you know, on Supersport around, around the whole of the country in favour of this stuff, then, then of course they're going to do that. This is the other way it goes, I suppose, is that you don't have a West Indies cricket board or a you know, particularly functioning West Indies cricket team, but you do have, you know, and you've already seen that, you have the, Trin, the Trinbago Knight Riders, basically. You have six IPL outposts and they, and they are effectively yeah, yeah, yeah. scouting exactly. and, you know, they would be effectively the people running cricket in the region which is just yeah. a different model um and one that would see test cricket relegated i suppose and international cricket relegated i completely get what both of you are saying but from the players point of view if they still hold odi cricket is important and they don't feel they can give it their full attention that is a problem for the format you're saying it's hard to feel sorry for an abstract idea but <laughs> could you get to a point where if if, if enough players feel strongly enough about ODI cricket and wanting to play it that is still the thing that for the ICC makes them so much money through the World Cup could you get to a point that this is actually how the players demonstrate they're not happy with the schedule by saying actually sorry mate we're not going to play ODI cricket we're not going to play in your World Cup yeah well Ben Stokes becomes cricket Mick Lynch forming a picket line outside ICC HQ nice (laughs) yeah so Stokes is an all or nothing cricketer as we know um, and he's got to a point in his career where he's given everything and more um there's no question regarding his commitment, his devotion to the cause. So if he's made this decision now, then we respect it. We need to. Absolutely. More broadly, it does speak of the slow erosion in importance and value of the 50-over game. It, unwittingly, it speaks of that. This is not on Stokes, obviously not. But it does speak of a more broad point. And this is a point that's been hanging around for a long, long time. And coming in this morning, I was thinking about this question and I was reminded I had a conversation with two legendary England cricketers who had both now retired. And this was about 10, 12 years ago. And I remember speaking to both of them separately. And they were both well-established 50-over cricketers as well as well-established test cricketers. And both of them hated 50-over cricket. They had no interest in playing it. They were doing it because it was useful for them, money-wise. Profile-wise, one of them got into the England team via the ODI stuff. Uh, but in terms of feeling that this was an integral part of their careers, no, no. And 
Around that time as well, there was talk about reducing 50 over cricket to 40 over cricket, more in line with the, the burgeoning T20 phenomenon. Uh, there was all kinds of missives coming out, by the way, that that was going to happen. And then for whatever reason, it didn't. Um, but yeah, that overall point that 50 over cricket is, is diminishing in, in value and importance among the players is definitely the case, for sure, for sure. And that's the one to go. That's, that's the awkward cousin in the, at the party who doesn't quite know what to say. The test game remains crucial to a player's self-respect and the T20 game is integral to their bank balance and the fun element of their, of their lives. Of course it is. Don't knock any of that. The bit in the middle is, is struggling for breath and will only be wheezing ever more in the, in the years to come. And yet, of course, the ICC is still, they're still lined up Two, two Champions Trophies, right? In the next few years. And obviously, World Cup's coming. It's right basically a major 50-over competition every two years for the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, in a way, it's been a very good week for, for Test cricket. Um, when is it I mean, not? Yeah, well, I remember, I, I don't know if this is one of the two players you're alluding to, but Graham Swan's been very public in his criticism for ODI cricket for about 10 years now. I think when he was an active England player, was saying, what's the point of this? You, you might say that. I couldn't um, possibly comment. <laughs> ben, on Stokes' ODI career... For that four-year period leading up to the 2019 World Cup, he was just brilliant, averaging 50 with a bat strike rate of just under 100. But even with him in the side, England haven't been doing that great in ODI cricket since the 2019 World Cup. They've lost their last two games. Jim asks, do England need a white ball reset? Uh, not, I mean, not a reset as such, It's but it's more that they are a side in transition and they haven't transitioned as smoothly as they would like I suppose and I think, possibly a bigger transition that people realize yeah I think so and also I think you probably we underestimate how much that was a glorious coming together of a generational set of talents for that world cup rather than you know something that was going to be very easy to sustain I think like a England obviously you know they pioneered a new way of playing they attacked more than they had done before sure they also had six guys in the top six all of it, well five of whom were averaging 40 or more, one of whom was averaging 50. Like that, that is essentially what allows you to get 350, 400 on a pretty regular basis. Like you can't, so, and, and that is going to be hard to replace. I mean, and I think, um, sorry, just on that, I think there's been like premature chat about a change of philosophy under Butler and Mott. And I think there might be in some ways that we've not really seen on the field yet. But in terms of how quickly England bat, you can't score 350 every time if you don't have four guys averaging 40 to 50, striking 100 to 120, which England had for, the, for those five years running up to the World Cup. Yeah, and, and then also, uh, so you had Stokes, uh, who was able to contribute some overs, which allowed you to have Mo and Ali, who wouldn't bowl his full 10 every time at number seven. And then you had, you know, Chris Wokes at eight, even Plunkett at nine. So they had also had, like, security as well. Those are all quite tr tricky players to replace when they're injured or not selected or whatever. And I think... What one small, maybe big thing is is how they replace Stokes. Now they continue to try and replace Morgan. I think England have been looking at basically their their best T Twenty players, looking at just promoting them to the uh, ODI side. I actually think, especially with how England are playing Test cricket right now, there's almost more worth in looking at who can build in innings while scoring at a decent rate, rather than who can hit a six uh, once every three balls, essentially. Um, and that will be, you know, you need, you need dynamic players, sure, but you, you need consistency, essentially, for ODI cricket. And so it'll be interesting to see which way they go with replacing Stokes. Brooke, Brooke is someone who might well be able to do that. Um, there are always shouts for, you know, the likes of James Vince and David Milan. I guess the one philosophical thing there is, they, is those are clear 
downgrades and the guys that have come before because they've been competing with them for places and not been able to get in. So England would not be as good a team as they were between 2015 and 2019 with one of those two being the guys that comes into number four. It doesn't mean they're not the best player. England might not have the players who are right now, but that is the issue there. Another guy I'd be quite interested to see is, is Ollie Pope, who uh, we see, we know he can build big, long innings. We know he can do that consistently. Uh, obviously, in Canterbury, it's shown that mostly on flatter pitches at the Oval, but that's what he's going to come across in Odell Cricket. We know he's technically pretty solid. We know he's got inventive strokes. We know he's always looking to score. I think there's he's basically got the makings of a, of a world-class ODI number four there, and I'd be very interested to see him get a go as well. Uh, and on the bowling, they've just got... Sorry, duck it. I'd add, yeah, add to yeah, that list. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Phil Salt's done well at the top of the order, but they <coughs> mixed him around in T20 cricket, so he's another option. Yeah, Salt's is probably more in that vein of uh, Livingston one. I suppose, mm, and that we don't, we don't yet true. know how consistent Salt can be. And this is, we've had questions about the relegation of the Royal London One Day Cup and that sort of thing. And I think that that has a part to play. But it's also, in some ways, I would feel less worried about that if some of these guys were playing a reason out of first class cricket, if they had just like innings building experience. We saw with Livingston, just take him as a specific example, in what was it, 2018, he was on the verge of a test debut. He was averaging in the 40s in first class cricket you know that was almost where he was seen as the the more exciting talent he makes a choice which is totally fine but he makes a choice to go and focus on his white ball career for the next couple of years it pays off because he's England's number five six in a in a t20 world cup where they get to the semi-final but you see his first class returns drop away when he does get back on the park which is not very regularly like for some players that is going to be a a muscle they have to continue to to train if they're going to keep up at a at a certain thing and that if you have a, a guy who's a good white ball player and you think might be a good odi player He's actually almost, he might not get basically any innings building uh, experience because, you know, there's so much of this, of T20 they're going to play. You know, there'll be the CPL, there's obviously the 100, there's the Blast, uh, and then there's the IPL and the County Championship bonds that they get in contract in there. There's the, the, the PSL, which will take them away from, and the Big Bash, which might take them away from Lions commitments in the winter. Uh, it's a tricky thing to see how uh, that, that that is something that could affect things as well, I think. Hmm. Um, just on the Durham ODI, Safka were really good. Van der Dusen played a, uh, an absolutely amazing innings. Uh, Mark and really well too. And then with the ball, they read conditions well, smart with their bowling options. Maharaj, not only captained well, but bowled really well, went at about fours um, and bowled himself a lot against Jason Roy. A lot of teams uh, try to be smart against Roy by by bowling left arm spinners early, but actually Maharaj just kept bowling. It wasn't just like, let's sneak one through. It's I'm actually going to bowl a lot to Roy and Roy really struggled. Yeah, that probably won in the game, that spell. 10 overs for 41, I think it was. Oh, Rassi, I like him. I, I like him as a player. He's, he's not a particularly sexy player, but he's got an outrageous record. I think he's like 75. Yeah, aston- <laughs> astonishing record. And and Milan as well, who isn't in the test squad. You're going to get back to me on that, yes? Because he averages 50-odd in first-class cricket and why he's not featuring in the test his, squad. His brothers play test cricket. Yeah, get him in. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they were impressive. Yeah, we, we I say it a lot, but... I find this current iteration of South African cricket um, oddly charming um, and I, I tend to root for them more than I have done in previous years and also, because there's a vulnerability to it, I suppose. you know. We've spoken uh, a fair bit on the pod about uh, their danger of not possibly qualifying for the World Cup. Which would, is exacerbated, by the way, by what we were talking about earlier. Exactly. But they beat India 3-0 in a series that wasn't part of the Super yeah, League. Yeah, but I believe I think they are 11th or 12th at the moment. Yeah, they're really struggling. And they, and, they, and they could still qualify for it automatically if they don't finish in the top eight, they go through the qualifier. Yeah. But what's 
there've been series where they haven't been at full strength. They've lost points, but actually they've been full strength in series that don't count. And um, they've, they've had some really, really good results. Just, just again on England, on, on how England, how people might not quite appreciate how much they've struggled since the World Cup. Since the 2019 World Cup, of the side that played at Durham, only Bairstow averages more than 40 against full member countries. Um, with the bat roots just below. Since the World Cup, Roy averages 24. Butler averages 13, 1 3. Moeen 20, Livingston 23. The guys with the best records are not on the team. Sam Billings, Dal Milan, and albeit small sample size, Zach Crawley. Um, those are the three guys who actually average over 40. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting how, how England actually bounce back from this. Yeah, my mate was, was asking me over the weekend, and this was before the Stokes news, obviously. Are we seeing the, a change? You know, this, as Ben says, it's transition. And it's hard to shake that sense. Is it, Teams, doesn't matter how good you are, they, you get tired. When you were reading out those averages, I kept thinking about the England 10-11 Ashes squad, you know, and how it was unique to have everybody at the peak of their powers in that one time. And it splinters and it fractures and it falls away, as does as is the case with all, all sports teams. There is that sense that it's happening here. Um, but it needn't be a kind of return to mediocrity by any means, because I mean, white ball cricket is now so established in the culture in England, in England, and we have a model of how we do it. And there's still some geniuses at work. So, so I don't see it being catastrophic yeah. by any means, but there is a natural changing of, of personnel. Um, and, and, you know, we can't underestimate a new, a new captain and coach. There is that notion. And this is what me and my mate was talking about this notion that, it, it, you're moving from one sure bet to another. Well, there's no such thing. And and while Butler is obviously nobody's fool and strategically pretty smart, you don't know how players react to the scrutiny and the pressure when they're put in a position that they've never been in before. Nor do you know what it's like, what it's going to be like for the coach who might be settling in immaculately, but he might not be. He might be feeling... This isn't quite the job for him. You just don't know what's going on, you know. And also, England were so good at ODI cricket that it felt like they underperformed by only just winning the World Cup. Yeah. Like, that's how good they were. Yeah. Like, yeah. actually being quite a lot worse than that is still probably going to be yeah. quite a good I'm time. Still, I'm still waiting for the, for, for, for the, for the Liam Livingston light bulb moment. Um, I'm still waiting a year, a year and a bit on. I, I made the mistake of going away last year and getting married for a few weeks and we came back home and... We'd stuck him on the front cover of, of the magazine that, that I'm in charge of, technically at least. Uh, still waiting for it. I know I know he hits the odd ball out, out of the ground and you go, yeah, that's impressive. But he also um, doesn't do things that he needs to do quite quite regularly. Yeah. I mean, Certainly in an England show. There are still definitely massive questions in ODI cricket. I think he's almost completely unproven in it. But he's had a really good IPL and really good T20 World Cup as well since then. I think T20 cricket, he's not got that many. Not, he's not got that much to prove. Was he great in the T20 World Cup? He's very good, yeah. Yeah, that innings against Africa. Uh, and also, he also just bowled really well. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's a better bowler than he is back from what I've seen. <laughs> the, the other thing, you mentioned the bowling, and that is another area. Obviously, it was England's batting that was the most eye-catching thing in that run-up to the World Cup and in the World Cup itself. So it's, that's the most noticeable thing when it falls away. But, you know, firstly, there are injuries. But when are you going to get those players back, I guess, all at the same time is a question. The likes of Wokes, Archer, Wood might never play an ODI together again possibly considering all their injury records uh, they haven't found a replacement for Liam Plunkett I also don't think they quite know if they 
want a replacement for Liam Plunkett in a way because he did such a specific job and it was almost like you had a bowling attack built out on the guy who could do that job and it's like do you need someone who just does that I don't know but that's a question for him to answer uh, they don't have a backup first choice spinner they trust because Matt Parkinson has uh, fallen away a bit in their estimations and he's not had a great time since his test debut and even if you whisper it Adil Rashid has not had a brilliant time in ODI cricket since that last World Cup either he's become a very very good t20 bowler in that time and perhaps that you know uh adding that variation in pace and those other variations in terms of which way you can turn the ball and those sorts of things that maybe means that you're not focusing on that one skill so much he averaged uh 86 with the ball no guys last year and is averaging 70 with the ball this year um but i think that's partly because teams are basically like what is milking that's true yeah yeah um his that's possible as well um so yeah but there are questions in a few areas basically i don't think england are fully certain on how they want to answer them um finals day was fun and extremely chaotic uh stay with me here lancashire needed five runs off the final ball to win the tournament nathan ellis bowls richard gleason hampshire runoff celebrating but then it turns out that ellis had overstepped he bowls it again ellis is slower ball to seize gleason lanks even though it's just gone to the keeper tried to scamper through for two buys they think they might have won it. Then there's controversy over whether or not the ball was dead. And then it also emerges that Hampshire changed the field for the free hit. Only really, people only realised because Saqib Mahmood, who wasn't playing and was working as a pundit, tweeted that after the game. Ben, a totally bonkers finish. And although the focus at the time was about whether the, the ball was dead or not, the, the field change for the free hit was a bigger issue. Although Hampshire fans will say that there was a no ball that should have been given in their favour at the end of their innings for Lancashire not having enough, enough fielders in the circle. Yeah, you can always point to umpiring errors here and there. And the MCC have put out a statement essentially exonerating the umpires on the dead ball thing. And I think that is fair. I think if you look at the replay and you watch it closely, there is a moment where one of the Lancashire batters is just way past the stumps given up and the other Lancashire batter is slowing down considerably also having given up and at that point the ball is is dead like no, no one considers the ball to be in play at that point um but I guess the thing on the on the free hit field change thing is this isn't one of those umpiring decisions where you can say oh well we don't know what would have happened if they'd uh if they'd got it right you know like like I say in the World Cup final or something where it's like oh if the ball hadn't hit Stokes's bat then who knows maybe hits that last ball for six and that's what happens in this sense we know definitively that if the Lancashire batters had said that guy shouldn't be there the umpires would be like oh yeah that's correct no game ball over. two runs you win the game um so you know I mean it's just it's kind of just one of those things but I guess it's interesting with a bit of a movement behind James Vince who had a brilliant campaign with the bat did did well to sort of uh resurrect Hampshire obviously to brilliant to resurrect Hampshire after they had a really poor start to the campaign but it is his field change that had the umpires not messed up would have cost Hampshire the title. And it's interesting how uh, these things changed, how people are perceived and spoken about, I suppose. He has had an amazing year in domestic cricket. Captain Southern Braves to the 100 last year. Yeah, you Hampshire can't throw that in, Ham- Ham- <laughs> Hampshire, Captain Hampshire to the blast this year. They're going really well in the county championship. He had an amazing tournament with the bat as well, scored a couple of hundreds. Um, his England days may well be over, but he's still right on top of his game. Just on the final again, uh, Ben McDermott was man of the match in the final. He whacked a rapid 62. And then only defending 151, Ellis, Liam Dawson, Mason Crane and James Fuller all went at fewer than six and a half runs per over. I, I think James Vince will play for England again. In which format? I uh, don't know. Maybe, maybe all of them. Maybe none of them. I just feel like there's a move 
in white ball cricket, two really sort of punchy six hitters uh, and fast tracking those types of players. But if it doesn't work all the time, then there's going to be a natural impulse to try and find somebody who is equally prolific and in more so in Vince's case, certainly domestically in T20 cricket, but who does it in a, in a slightly different way. And with the ODI side, I can see that happening. Say if Jason Roy continues to struggle a bit, then they might think, okay, perhaps his time as an opener is, is run. And then would they bring in another, you know, swashbuckling hitter who brilliantly, as he does, goes from ball one? Or will they bring in a more kind of Joe Root-esque type player? You know, and, and I can, I just... My instinct is just that Vince will play again at some level. I was surprised that he wasn't in the T20 squad, actually, considering how well he played for Hampshire. Mm. Well, I mean, his, his last ODI game for England was, was scoring 100 as England chased down 330 against Pakistan. Before we move on, a word on Gulliver's sports travel. Gulliver's is the leading tour operator in specialist sports travel with over 40 years experience taking fans all over the world to bucket list events and once-in-a-lifetime destinations. With the Men's T20 World Cup taking place in Australia in October and November, Gulliver's is the official travel agent of the tournament. Join them on a trip of a lifetime to experience T20 cricket of the highest calibre, watching them take on Australia, New Zealand, Afghanistan and maybe others in the shortest and most electrifying format of the international game this winter. Head to gulliverstravel.co.uk to find out more. This week... England women beat South Africa 3-0 in an ODI series. The third game that took place on Monday, that was the first of the crazy hot days in the UK. South Africa won the toss and opted to field first, which raised a few eyebrows at the time, and even more so when England finished their 50 overs on 371. Uh, Tammy Brobon drew level with Charlotte Edwards for the most hundreds for England in women's ODI cricket in the same week that she was dropped from England's uh, Commonwealth Games squad, which is a T20 tournament. Uh, just on that third ODI, Lamb, Dunkley and Knight also all passed 50. And then with the ball, Dean, Lamb and Davidson Richards all took threefers. Um, the big theme this summer for England is, is that there's this new group of youngsters who are not just playing, but they're dominating as well. Lamb passed 50 in all three games this series. Dunkley's promotion from three has really worked. Um, and they've kind of gone with that youth policy in, in dropping Beaumont. Um, Alice Capsey's in the squad, she's only 17. And as is Freya Kemp, who's only 17. She's even younger than Capsey. She's only just turned 17. They the- really like Freya Kemp. She features in the current magazine um, as one of, I think, eight or nine burgeoning up-and-coming uh, up cricketers, female cricketers. And she she was one that, that people well. who know, yeah. <laughs> she was one that people who know say, you have to speak to her, you have to feature her. Um, she's a real talent. I haven't seen much of her. In fact, I haven't seen any any of her to be tr- to be truth. But but she's one that they're very very excited about. What do you make of the the, the youth policy overall dropping? Bo- Beaumont's record in T Twenty cricket isn't that great. Uh, she's only had one year where she's had a strike rate of over one hundred and twenty. This week, Lisa Cartley, the head coach, talking about the promotion. Those youngsters said it's their time. Uh, the structure underneath the regional structure has given them the confidence to come in and play at that next level when they get the call up. Um, well, well, I feel sorry for Tammy, um, you know, who's done amazing things for England, highest run scorer in that World Cup, made a strummed 100 this week. Um, but it won't be a personal thing. Uh, and for too long, we, we felt that it was a bit of a closed shop, the England women's side. So if there can be that injection of youth, um, a little bit, a little bit of colour and a little bit of vibrancy into, into that, that setup, then then it, it, it's a positive thing, of course it is. And I think as well, I mean, it's different 
considering the, the batters versus the bowlers. I think Emma Lamb and Sophia Dunkley are just in England's best top six right now. Uh, and I think, or I hope, one effect of this, I gave sort of, a, I reckon, a quite a rambling answer on what England did to catch Australia last week. But one one thing that I think is quite important is not just that those two are upgrades on the players that have come before, like, like Lauren Winfield-Hill and others. It's also that... Tammy Beaumont is, to some extent, accepted from this. But say Nat, Nat Siver and Heather Knight, you would have looked at uh, Siver in particular as a player who really should be absolutely dominating the world game. She should have she 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 is good enough to have the kind of Perry, Lanning, Stephanie Taylor, Susie Bates levels of consistency that she wasn't quite reaching. She had a brilliant World Cup. She is getting close to doing that now. But I think almost having it's not competition for places as such. It's just competition for who's the best player on any given day. Having that kind of that dynamism around a team will push everyone forward. Having the players who are coming, who are hungry, who haven't seen it all before. That's the other thing I think that will take England forward is it's not just personnel in terms of replacing some of the lower performing players. It's, it is those other those senior players taking to the next level. I think that's what they'll do as well. Ben, what's your moment of the week? Well, I mean, it, it's from this incredible Sri Lanka-Pakistan game that's just finished uh, this morning. I had to just pick one moment. And so I've gone for one ball, which is... a uh, Yazir Shah, you seen this, Phil? Bowling a, 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 I know you hate the word uh, Warnesque, but it is the mirror image of the Gatting ball, like to the sort of the the, the slightly hapless playing back and the uh, uh, the p- pitching outside leg hitting off. Um, I saw a tweet from someone saying that cricket needs its own version of the Puskas Award for, right. the, for the best ball of the idea. year. We sh- a- we should genuinely do that. All right, let's pay. Let us do it. Let's do it at the end end, let's, end of the year. Let's steal that chap's idea. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, <laughs> but we're going to take the idea. I tell you, but we'll use his name. Yeah, his. Well, he might have a pretty weird Twitter handle. Though. It's fine, not a problem. Um, but yeah, <laughs> cricket definitely needs that. It's such an easy thing to do. Is it the Warner Award? Is it just the Warner Award? I don't know. Yeah, uh, it could easily be. Shame could easily be. But anyway, it's worth just dwelling on, on, on that game because Sorry. it was incredible. Good to see Yassir Shah back, by the way, because you know if you don't play for a little while and you have the odd bad game in Pakistan cricket, you kind of think that might be your lot. Great to see him back. Yeah, it feels like Test cricket at the moment has an abnormal amount of players in absurd runs of form, yeah. basically. <laughs> like like Dinesh Chandamal, for example, makes that incredible double hundred against uh, Australia last week. This week makes a uh, seventy six coming in at what's at one point Shank was sixty eight for four. Uh, 133 for eight, and he takes him to 222. And then the second he's innings, a player of all-time great in- innings. Yeah, Chandamal, isn't he? The second innings, 94 not out to take them to what looks like a match-winning target of 342. Babar's innings in the first was even better than either of those. Uh, a 50% century. of the runs, right? Yeah, but even also like, no one else made it to 20, and he makes 119. So even making 119, he made 100 more than the next best. Uh, and they were 85 for seven, and then got up to 218. So ebbing and flowing. And then the fourth thing is all about this. Uh, Abdullah Shafiq, who I'm not, we must have talked about in the podcast before, uh, but he, they clearly really, really rate him. And I know Pakistan is not shy of promoting a youngster He's who they think boy, has got the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he basically, uh, so this is only his ninth first class match, six of them are test <laughs> matches. So because of COVID, he's Brilliant. not played that much first class cricket. He's averaging cricket. what, 75? Uh, 80 in test cricket and 82 in first class cricket. But he basically, uh, plays for a region in Pakistan that has an unbelievably good batting lineup. So even though they rated him, he didn't get in their side. Right. And then when he got in, he just got, I think he got 100 on first class debut or whatever. And then went straight. I mean, he's only 22 now and went straight into their T20 side, even though that, that that's not really his thing. He does have a T20 hundred though. Yes, like, he, yeah, he does. I, th- he I, th- does. I think actually there is a, a 
reasonable chance he comes into the ODI side and really excels mm. there as well. But, yeah. it, but this, I mean, it, but he, he's not one of these modern white ball hitters. I mean, so he made a fourth innings hundred to chat back and chase down 342, uh, winning by four wickets, faces 408 balls. And in that time, only hit seven fours and, and one six. So he can properly resist. Uh, he, he played a massive part in that incredible Karachi escape earlier this year as well. Uh, so he's a real, real talent. And the other guy who's in incredible form just from these two teams is Prabhath Jaisaria, who's got 21 wickets from his first four bowling innings. So he's got two sixfers, a fiver, and now a fourfer. So he's getting worse, I suppose. So he's yeah. got that to work on. Uh, <laughs> Bill, there was a new Wisdom Cricket Monthly that came out last week, but you and you and Joe weren't here, so we didn't talk about it. What, no. what What's in it? Um, great front cover, by the way. Yeah, Johnny thank Bestow. you for our YouTubers. There you go. There you go. What's in it? Well, uh, I write a probably overly wordy um, thing on the month that may or may not have changed English cricket. <laughs> uh, trying to trying to understand the the, the phenomenon of, of of the Stokes McCullum era. Spoke to some people inside it and was lucky enough to be at be at some of the games, so was able to to try and unpick that. Um, I spoke to Moeen Ali as well uh, when I was up at Leeds, um, who reiterated his point that he's ready, ready and willing, um, as and when England go to Pakistan to see it almost like a homecoming in in some respects. Uh, he is as ever brilliant, brilliant brilliantly quotable. Uh, as I said earlier, we've interviewed seven or eight young female cricketers coming through, and not so much about how you bowl a, a block hole ball, but what's, what the reality of life as a young, aspiring professional female cricketer is like, the sacrifices you have to make, the decisions that you have to take, the support that you need from your family, how you actually make it work for you on a, as a lifestyle, as well as a calling. Dan Brigham um, has written a brilliant thing on the Strauss legacy, if you like. Um, you forget what a great batsman he was. Andrew Strauss, why are you laughing? Well, we do that all the time where we forget how good people were, and like this is a, this is a sweet spot. About ten years after they've gone, like, yeah. So uh, I don't yeah. know if we talked about it on the pod, but I was mesmerised by the Graham Swan masterclass on Sky. Right, haven't um, seen it. It's, it's twenty minutes of basically how how he bowled off spin, and he right. talked about how his grip was different to everyone else's. And they showed a replay of what he described as one of his best spells, which I think six for against Pakistan, edge bass, and I think there's a famous ball he bowls to Imran Farhat which pitches outside his leg stump, hits top of off. There's one, I can't remember who the batsman is. There's one where, uh, I think to a left-hander, ball spins sharply, beats the outside edge. Matt Pryor takes an amazing take and then whips the bells off. I was like, bloody hell, they were good. Yeah. And Swan. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Of, and it's the same people are probably realising about now. Is, Whoa, Strauss is good, wasn't he? He was some bowler. <laughs> Talking of those masterclasses, the, the, the Peterson one against left-arm spin is is masterful. Mm. Um, absolutely stunning. Um, necessary to catch that if you can but sorry Dan Brigham on Strauss yeah Dan Brigham on Strauss the Strauss legacy a symphony in three movements we called it obviously um Strauss the player Strauss the Strauss the captain Strauss the um the revolutionary administrator I suppose that's beautifully done uh, by a very very good writer uh, Andrew Miller the great columnist on the ECB's um, almost flamboyant neglect of the of the blast. Uh, Mark Ramprakash on the the alienness of Owen Morgan, um, including some fascinating details on when Morgan was captain and Ramprakash was batting coach. It's 
fair to say there was a degree of daylight between the two of them. Um, uh, Tim Wigmore is is very good and very depressing um, on the the IPL deal and what that means, that obscene $6 billion IPL deal and what that means for the future of the game, echoed through this podcast itself. I know he's been on the show as well, talking up his book, which is incidentally very good. Um, what else? Taha Hashim meets Mark Elaine. Again, fascinating interview. Um, he doesn't dodge any any difficult questions regarding race in cricket uh, in particular. Um and that's a really, really good interview. Um, it's great to see Mark Lane getting the recognition that's been long overdue. Um, so that's a real good one. Chat uh, with Mushy. Pardon? Chat with Mushy. Mushtaq Ahmed's uh, great, great moments. Great, well, good, the good, the bad, and the ugly from Mushtaq's career. He's in there. Um, Ed Smith's in it. Bob Massey, remember him? You probably don't, but anyway, he took 16 at Lords in 72. Um, Jim Wallace writes some utter garbage about John T. John T. Rhodes and Andy Zaltzman celebrates the number five after uh, Johnny Bairstow did some impressive stuff from that very position uh, during England's month of fun. Wonderful. Uh, it's a really, really good magazine. But Oh, and John Hotton on Boycott, which I've talked about on the show before, so I won't go into details, but Boycott and Me by John Hotton is again another little minor masterpiece fantastic well head to wisdom.com forward slash shop to get your hands on the magazine as always uh, just a few questions from the listeners to finish uh, richard ross asks from what you've seen and heard in the county championship this season who are your tips for making england debuts in the next two to three years uh i'll, I'll go first i guess it's it's a make it quick it's yeah it's a difficult question to answer because you've got to think where are the spots going to become available and actually, what's the pecking order there already? So I think Sam Cook has a decent chance of playing in a home summer, considering England's injury record. Uh, he's very skillful. He's probably just about quick enough. I can see him really doing a job in home conditions. It's not a particularly sexy name, but I, and I don't know if he's going to be the answer to in all conditions. But it just takes that, wickets one. everywhere in all conditions, and he gets good players out. He's not very quick, whatever. He just takes wickets. And he goes for next to nothing. He just does not bowl bad balls. He's as accurate as they come. He's Potts-like, only slightly slower than Potts. But he will do a similar kind of job. And also did surprisingly well in the England Lions white ball game. Like for someone of his style, you think 50 over cricket wouldn't really suit him. It actually did pretty well. Um, he's, a, he's a brilliant bowler. I'm uh, going, op go, sorry. Opener, uh, I'd, I'd, I think this might not be 2-2, two, two, this might be more 4-5. to five, But Ali Orr is uh, yeah, someone who's coming up the ranks quite quickly. He's made some really, really impressive uh, uh, recent scores. Got a brilliant 100 and Sussex's only win, a big chase. Uh, and interestingly, we were having a, a chat to Ben Jones and he, said, he says he's one who's come out really well on certain analytic measures, but has sort of that yet to translate to these consistent returns. If there is something underlying there, that can sort of drive something consistent. And, and, and since that conversation... Shout, that and since we had that one. conversation with Ben, uh, his first class record now is brilliant. He now averages 45, full stop. Um, I'm going for Sam Hain, Jack Haynes and Tom Haynes. Uh, Sam Hain, everyone kind of rates very highly. He averages nearly 40 in first class cricket, having another really good year. Jack Haynes, probably a little bit further away. He's 21, uh, scored I think, three back-to-back -back hundreds for Worcester and Tom Haynes. Ali was opening partner at Sussex. Um, he's done well for a couple of years now. He, he's, his returns this season have fallen off a little bit, but I, I really like watching him play. And then in the bowling department, uh, he's not played an awful lot. He's 24 years old, but Gus Atkinson at Surrey, he, he he was clocked at 90 miles per hour in the blast a couple of weeks ago. 
if you can bowl 90 miles per hour, he's done well in the championship when he's played this season, albeit he's not played a lot. You're in with a chance playing for England. Um, so he's Yeah, on. absolutely. Any, anyone else? Shout that. That was really, I've been really impressed with Gus Atkinson. Um, someone else from here, I mean, it's an obvious shout, but Will Jacks hasn't played for England yet. Uh, he's playing every four-day game out there as Surrey's premier do-a-job spinner, um, but making useful runs. But as an opener as well in white ball cricket, he's he whacks it. You imagine with Moeen Ali not going to hang around forever, uh, th- there would be a role for him to play as a kind of containing spinner and a, and a hitter at number six, seven. So I, I think he will play for England at some point. And he, in first class cricket, he can really rag it, can't he? So yeah, he's 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 useful. He's useful at at this at this level. And the way that Surrey play, they're preparing really interesting, good pitches this year with pace and bounce, and it's favouring the quicks through the air that they've got. Uh, and he's doing a useful job for them um, in the margins. Come August September, when they're pushing for the title, it'll be interesting to see whether he maintains his place or whether they bring somebody in. They've got a couple of spinners on the, on the books as well. But anyway, he's a good cricketer. Um, uh, is it Rayan or Rian Ahmed? Yeah, Rian Ahmed. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't mention him. Uh, 17? Brilliant young, young leggy, already making waves. He's at Leicester. Uh, you hope he stays there for a while and that he becomes their, their, their centrepiece, a leggy, um, Already got hundred contract. He's already got hundred contract. contract. Yeah, um, he's been sniffing around England Lions stuff. Uh, he will go far again, more like a white ball cricketer because it's so bloody hard to bowl red ball leg spin internationally or anywhere. Uh, I'll continue to say Tom Lamanby until he just proves me to be completely wrong. But every time I see him play. I think there is a really, really good player in there who just consistently doesn't quite get the runs that he did during the COVID year when he made 300s in six games. He had an all-time stinker last year. He's done some good things here and there this year without putting a run of scores together. But whenever I watch him, he looks like he has a really good modern technique and he's making runs in white ball cricket as well. I still think there is a good player in there somewhere. Uh, Jack Haynes for sure. Yeah, and, uh, and, he, and he plays at a place where it's quite hard to bat. Yeah. As well. And the other one maybe is Liam Patterson White. If you're looking yeah. at a tour to Pakistan and somebody to, you know, go in Leach's slipstream, then he's a good left arm spinner who bats a bit as well at knots. He's a good cricketer. Um, we've had a few questions on Freddie Flintoff's Field of Dreams, the BBC show where he starts a cricket team in Preston full of kids who've never played before. Um, we'll talk about it next week when, when I've watched when it. more of us have watched it. When I'm, I've watched it. I've been away. I'm uh, I'm two episodes in and and oh, I just love the bit where Adnan, the 16-year-old Af- Afghan refugee, bowl for the first time where all the other kids kind of see someone bowl quick for the first time and are just in awe of him. Uh, so we'll talk about that. It's almost like cricket's a great game if you just put it in front of people. Yeah. Isn't it? It's funny that. But also just like the impact of pace. They just, mm. they just couldn't believe someone mm. could bowl that quickly yeah. and then he bowls it. It's like, oh, how do you do that? I'm, I'm um, going to watch it, yes, for next um, week, I promise. Looking forward to that conversation. Um, and finally, George asked, who is the most underrated cricketer in the world right now? Oof. Paul Sterling and Rassi van der Dusen. Uh, he sent this question in during van der Dusen's 100 yesterday. They spring to mind, but it'd be great to hear your thoughts. Uh, don't need to explain it that much, but I'm just going to go for boring answers. Bolt and Roach. Everyone know that, kn- knows that they're good, but I think they're better, even better than people. Good shout, um, Kimar Roach. About. Very Sha- good shout. Shakib Hassan, entirely same reasonings. Mm. H- higher batting average and lower bowling average than Ben Stokes in Test Cricket. Boom. Uh, Karuna Ratney, brilliant record last couple of years, running the ship pretty well in Sri Lanka. 
The other one is Temper Bavuma, um, who came into the team and had to trail this perception that he was there for reasons aside from his talent. Uh, well, he's a really good player. He just doesn't make hundreds. And if you don't make hundreds, you don't get noticed. He averages 47 in test cricket since the start of last year. He, when he's fit, he runs the white ball stuff as well, or parts of the white ball stuff. I think he's a really good player, a really technically fine player and a really good bloke as well, a really substantial man. He doesn't get the credit as a cricketer that he deserves. Absolutely. Are we not going to answer the weather question? Uh, so, so, so someone asked just, uh, what, what's the hottest test oh, match yes, you've experienced or, or been at? And I, I know that Phil's got a couple of stories. He's trying to round it up, yeah. but, but sod it. Go for it. Uh, <laughs> did you hear that? <laughs> um, witnessed the worst day of my life at Sydney, day four, 2017-18 tour, so January 18. Um, the hottest, hottest day since 1930-something in Sydney, 47 degrees. Joe Root on a drip day. Joe Root, um, yeah, severe dehydration on a drip. Uh, even some Aussies were saying, yeah, maybe we shouldn't play. Uh, apart from the Marsh brothers, who both made cheerily happy, serene hundreds, because, of course, they grew up at the Wacker, so, so that was fine to them. Uh, that was horrible. Talking of the Wacker, I was there the year before, um, people putting their laptops in the freezer because the aircon, which was just one big, huge tumble, had broken in the tent in the marquee where we were. Because uh, I've heard stories about it. It's terrific because it's not a press box, is it? It's just a, it's just no, it's, a, it's just a, a marquee. marquee. This was at the old Wacker, obviously. This was in 2013 or whatever it was. That was hellish. Uh, yeah. And of course, there's the Madras game in 86, which I wasn't at because I'd have been six years old, uh, where Dean Jones... Um, pissed himself and crapped himself all the way to 210 in 46 or 40-something degree heat. Doesn't remember anything after about 120 um, and then was rushed to hospital immediately after that with Borders line, famous line ringing in his ears when he got to tea and he was 160-odd not out and he was saying, I can't go anymore and they were changing him on the on the physio's table and, and he'd soiled himself and all the rest of it. And Border said, if you don't go out there, then we'll get a real Australian out there. We'll get a proper Queenslander because Greg Ritchie was in next. Um, yeah, so that's got to be up there. And it was tied, a tie exactly. game. Exactly. So every single one of those 210 runs mattered because of the tie game. So Indeed, yeah. mate. The hottest I've seen is when I was out in uh, Abu Dhabi for the ICC Men's T20 World Cup qualifying Where's your own fault? Uh, the tolerance over, which is just this... Bit of grass next to the proper Abu Dhabi What's stadium. The Tolerance Oval. Is that ironic? It's genuinely called the Tolerance Oval. Um, and it's 40 odd degrees and, and crucially no shelter at all from the sun. Um, thanks for sending those questions in. If you want to ask us a question, do get in touch at podcast at wisdom.com. Uh, thanks for listening. If you do enjoy the podcast, please do consider giving us a five-star review either on the podcast app or Spotify or both. It really does help us out. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Ben. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.